Walters is happy to welcome both the Nationals and D.C. United back home this week. If you're heading to any games, we encourage you to stop by Walters before, during, or after the game. Walters also is one of the best locations in D.C. to follow the Capitals and the Wizards 2021 postseason run. So when the Nationals are away, there still are great reasons to walk on over to Walters. This month, Walters is the place to be, not only for Nats games, but also the perfect place to watch Wizards and Caps playoff games with friends. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The kick and the one-two pitch. Swing and a miss. Blew him away at 101. And Josh Bell strikes out to leave the bases loaded. So a double from Zim, a couple of walks, the Nationals strand three. And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, May 12, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Another loss for the Nationals on Tuesday night, a sixth loss in seven games. Nats fall to 13-18 and 18 on the season, a 6-2 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park. Game one of a three-game series, a game that took a crisp three hours and 58 minutes. A nine-inning ball game that was two minutes shy of four hours. How's your pace of play going, Commissioner Manfred? Hello, Mark. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm trying to stay awake here, Al. This was a rough one. The thing was, like, it was or should have been a compelling ball game. There were some moments late in the game that you wanted to get up for, and it just was hard to really get too excited about it because it was dragging so much. Because you kind of felt the inevitable where it was going to go, unfortunately, and that is where it wound up going. But let me give you a couple numbers here. You said three hours and 58 minutes. How about 370 total pitches between the two teams in a, in a nine-inning game that was 6-2 to two for a final? So we're not talking about a game that was super high scored. 370 pitches, 73 of them were foul balls. I mean, there were some long epic at-bats in this game, but some of those at-bats just dragged on. And if you're somebody trying to create a new baseball fan, this is not a game to show them. This is not going to help convince anyone to become a baseball fan. No doubt. I love baseball. You love baseball. Chances are everyone listening to this right now loves baseball. Games like what happened on Tuesday night are horrible for baseball. They are terrible for building new fans. They are terrible for keeping existing fans. It's hard enough to invest in 162 of these things over the course of a season if you are, you know, a person with a job or a person with any kind of a life. When you ask for four hours a pop or three plus hours of pop. I mean, forget about it. People are going to check out. They don't have time for this kind of a thing. It's not good. I know this doesn't happen every game, 
But it happens enough to where it's a real issue for baseball. We're not going to solve all the problems on this installment of the podcast, but we had to note that. I mean, that, that was a brutal watch in so many ways. Three hours, 58 minutes. We do have some good news, though, we want to pass along to you. And that is that Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts are about to be available. Yes, they are good-looking shirts with a very good logo that our guy Tim Shovers came up with. We'll get you the info on how you can get yourself assured. But these are sharp, man. These are going to sell. I, I have a very good faith in that. Yeah, I've seen uh, the prototypes of it. I'm looking forward to getting my own official batch for the whole family and wearing them around the neighborhood. It is really sharp, but it's a great logo. It looks good. It'll help spread the word. We appreciate everyone who has not only been listening to the podcast, but has been rating it, reviewing it, helping spread the word about it, helping us turn this into something far greater than I think we even thought it might be. And uh, perhaps even someone might even wear it to a ball game at Nats Park at some point. And if I spot you from the press box, I'll try to give you a shout out, maybe run down and say hi to you. And uh, I'd say, shake your hand. I can't do that. Yet. I'll give you I'll give you an elbow bump. How about that? If I see you in the, in the crowd wearing a t-shirt. I want to get Strasburg when he comes back to wear a Nats Chat podcast shirt. Okay. That, that's that's going to be our goal. You don't know if you're going to. There are a few guys I can think of that maybe you could pull that off with. I don't know that we're getting Steven Strasburg as our celebrity endorsement. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. Well, we'll, we'll try for somebody else then. But yes, Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts. We're very excited about that. And like Mark just said, so appreciative of all the support. And you know what? Maybe we'll get Mark to model one of these shirts one of these days. That's a possibility as well. There's a reason that we don't see our faces or they don't see our faces on this <laughs> podcast, Al. This is audio only for good reason. That's right. That's right. Well, it was another loss for the Nationals on Tuesday night. Stop me if you've heard this before. The Nationals offense was underwhelming against a subpar pitcher. The Philly starter was Chase Anderson. He came into the game with an ERA of 554 over six starts so far this season. Chase Anderson, in case you don't know, is in his age 33 season. This is not some young up-and-comer. This is not some highly touted prospect who's on the verge of blossoming. This is Chase Anderson. He of an ERA approaching six coming into the game. He ends up giving up two runs in five innings on five strikeouts. Nats put some guys on. It's not like they did nothing throughout the game, but they clearly did not do enough offensively. And another brutal plate appearance for Josh Bell in another brutal game for Josh Bell. First of all, he's the number three batter, which I thought was really interesting. He goes 0 for 4 with a couple of strikeouts, strikes out on four pitches with two outs, the bases loaded, and the Nats trailing 3-2 in the bottom of the seventh inning. In a near four-hour affair, that was the low point, without question. Yeah, that was the bat everyone's going to be talking about afterwards. Now, I mean, he's facing the guy, Jose Alvarado, who's throwing 101-mile-an-hour sinkers. And if he's locating it anywhere near the plate, that's a nightmare to face. Now, the problem is you never know if he's going to be near the plate. And right before Bell came up, he walked Trey Turner on an alo- one of several long at-bats in this game, 14 pitches. Great job by Trey to keep fouling off those tough ones and force the issue to where ultimately Alvarado could not throw it over the plate anymore. And then Juan Soto only saw four pitches all balls, and I think that may have been by design. And this is where the problem arises. We talked about this from spring training. You have to have somebody hitting behind Soto that the opposition respects. Maybe it won't matter. Maybe they're still going to walk in many ways, but you'd at least like to have somebody step up to the plate in that moment that you feel like gives you a good chance to then drive in the runs. And Josh Bell just has not consistently shown he can be that guy. It's a lot to ask of someone to hit you know, off the 101 mile an hour sinker, but it's not like that was an outlier at bat. This has been going on for the better part of a month now, he had a big at bat in the first inning when Turner and Soto both singled off the far less imposing Chase Anderson and Bell struck out 
to start an over three rally there, lack of rally by Bell, Schwarber, and Gomes. And it just set the tone for the night. And this is becoming a thing. You look up at the scoreboard and Josh Bell has a 134 batting average. He has a 200 on base percentage, a 293 slugging percentage, and a 493 OPS. He's got 80-something plate appearances, 82 at-bats, 88 plate appearances for the year. This is a decent sample size we have now. And I get it. You're Davey Martinez. You say he needs to be a part of our lineup. I can't abandon him. That's fine. He cannot be hitting behind Juan Soto right now. This isn't just about getting Bell out of a slump. It's about giving your team the best chance to win. And your only chance to win right now is to give Soto at least a chance to hit. And if not him, the guy behind him needs to be somebody who can deliver a hit as well. And it's just not happening with Josh Bell. Guys get DFA'd for having the numbers that Josh Bell has so far this year. Now, I'm not saying he's going to get DFA'd. They very clearly are giving him every opportunity to get on board here, okay? And I think they should because they don't have many other options. You know, that's kind of the overarching theme to all of this is this is the best they have. And that's a really big problem for the Nationals. And it's worthy of a lot of conversation. We've had that conversation so far, but these are DFA level numbers, which Josh Bell is putting up so far on the season. And I, I don't understand at all him batting third. You move up guys in lineups to reward them, okay? When guys are doing well, you don't elevate them when they're struggling. Davey continues to tinker with a lineup game in, game out. I don't think that's the end of the world that he does that. But Josh Bell batting third, I'm sorry, with his 493 OPS, uh, that's not working, okay? Homie don't play that, as they used to say on In Living Color with Homie the Clown. And you just, you can't be doing that. I did think it was interesting too. Ryan Zimmerman comes into the game, gets another hit, another extra base hit, two out pinch double in the bottom of the seventh, then stays in the game for Josh Bell. I think that was the right call. Do you think that was perhaps telling? Maybe Davey getting a little fed up with the way things are going with Bell. Well, I think it was a little bit telling. I think it also was just a matter of fact that, you know, Bell strikes out and the inning is over. And so it's an opportunity to double switch. And you're thinking, okay, Zim may get another at bat before the game is over. And at that point, it's still a one-run game, so you're hopeful of it. So I think it was designed to make sure Zimmerman got another bat and recognizing that it was the exact right spot in the lineup to do it. But boy, am I going to be curious to see Wednesday's lineup when it comes out. I mean, they're not facing any lefties in this series. It'll be Zach Wheeler, who I believe Zimmerman has decent numbers against in his career from when he was with the Mets. If Zim isn't in the lineup on Wednesday, I don't know when it's going to happen. And I'm not advocating benching Bell altogether. He's not shouldn't be losing his job altogether, but you have to give your team the best chance to win. And right now, Zimmerman gives you a better chance to the extent that he's healthy and able to play. If you start Ryan Zimmerman every day right now, then by about June 20th, he's going to blow out his hamstring or his foot or something. He's going to miss a lot of time. So that's not the answer, but he's got to play more than he is. And here you were talking about surprise that Bell hit third. I was surprised that it was Turner Soto 1-2. We've talked about this. I get that, yes, in an ideal scenario, they make sense as you're one and two, but you got to get them up to bat with runners on base if at all possible. And they have some candidates who could hit leadoff. Josh Harrison can do it. Victor Robles, you know, for all his faults, he's actually getting on base at a decent clip. And if it was me, I think I'd rather have one of those two leading off, followed by Turner and Soto or Soto and Turner, whatever order you want to use. At this point, it's desperation time, but to me, you got to get Turner and Soto up with runners on base as much as possible because that's the only way you're driving in runs right now. Davey will not bat Robles leadoff. 
Davey will not do it. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know why the plug got pulled on that eight games into the season. We saw it recently, briefly, and Robles is right back to batting in that number eight spot again. I don't understand it. Someone's got to explain to me why Josh Bell gets this 10-mile-long leash and Victor Robles gets this six-inch leash. I, I, I find that very strange, especially when Robles is a young guy, highly touted guy, but Davey won't do it. Um, you know, Harrison, I think, is interesting because he's had a good season. He's cooled off, though, a lot over the last three games, 0 for 13 with five strikeouts, 0 for 4 with a couple of strikeouts on Tuesday night. That's the thing, too. I mean, it wasn't just Bell who struggled. Jan Gomes had a rough game, number five batter, 0 for 4 with a strikeout. I mentioned Harrison. Robles actually didn't do all that well, 0 for 4. This was a game that, in a lot of ways, sort of captured the state of the lineup, where Turner had a very good game, 3 for 4 with a homer, two singles, and that incredible walk. Juan Soto had a good game with the hit and then three walks in the game, although the hit was a single. You know, Kyle Schwarber had some moments, RBI single and a hit by pitch. But like otherwise, nobody else gave you anything in this game. It's very difficult to win that way. Turner and Soto reached base a combined eight out of 10 plate appearances. That is everything you could ask for from those two. And they scored a total of two runs and Turner had to drive himself in on a homer. The only other run scoring hit was uh, Schwarber's. RBI single in the, the sixth at the end of another long at bat, 11 pitch at bat. If those two are getting on base eight times a game, they have to score more than two runs. And that's where I keep talking about the protection has to come in or those two need to be batting with runners on base so that when they're getting on base, they're driving somebody else in in front of them. If you have a deep lineup full of productive hitters, yes, Turner Soto 1-2 makes sense. But short of that, when they are your only two reliably productive hitters. And this was the case last year all too often. I don't think you can hit them one, two. I think you have to put somebody in front of them and give them a chance to drive in runs. Yeah, I'm not against it. Although they are your best hitters and I do get the philosophy of just get them up as often as possible. And if you bat them one, two, you're going to do that. Just maximize those two guys because beyond those two, you don't know what you have at this point. I mean, it's really disturbing how bad the rest of this lineup has been for so much of this season. And we keep waiting for it to change. And I know we get kind of sucked into the day-to-day on this. You know, it is only, what, May 12th. But it's like, when is this going to happen here? I mean, it's one thing to slump the way Bell has slumped Schwarber to a lesser extent. These are scary numbers. Like Josh Bell, like I said, he's hitting at a level. You're almost like, I can't continue to play you with you playing like this. Like these are Chris Davis-like numbers that Josh Bell is putting up. And, you know, at some point you have to say, well, do we keep waiting? When do you draw that line? Like, what if this is happening going into the month of June? Like, do you still say, well, he's going to bust out. It can't continue. Well, it's continued for two months. Like, I wonder internally, if you're Mike Rizzo, if you're Davey Martinez, where is that line? Where is the cutoff point where you say, all right, enough with this. We got to go to a plan B. I don't know. It's a great question. I think they're getting close to it. And like we said, there is sort of a plan B waiting in the wings, a guy who is doing extremely well off the bench, but they know they have to protect Zimmerman. And if to play him every day is to run the risk of a major injury, and that's only going to make things worse for everyone. But to me, there's a compromise somewhere in the middle of that. You give Zim more starts, not every start, but you give him more starts. Find the games that make the most sense matchup-wise. Get him in there. And when Bell plays, you know, he did it once. He moved him down to like the sixth or seventh spot for one game, and that was it. And he was right back up there. I know there's not a lot of really accomplished hitters. It's not like there's a lot of alternatives there, but there's somebody who's better than 134 who can hit up in the order a bit and provide that protection that you need. And look, just to get back, I don't want to keep belaboring the point, but you keep saying, okay, you want to give your best hitters as many at-bats as possible. Okay, great. But 
what good is that extra at bat if it's coming with nobody on base? It's not accomplishing anything. The goal here isn't just to get the most at bats for your best players. It's to score runs. And if they're the only ones who can drive in runs, then they have to come up to bat with a chance to drive in runs. And the construction as it is right here is not providing them opportunities to do that. Yeah, I mean, unless, you know, they hit a homer, which at this point, they're like two of the few guys you can reasonably expect to do that. But yeah, I mean, it, it's this is a very poorly conceived lineup. It is. And the big question to me is, is this what Mike Rizzo wanted to do? Or did he want to do more this past offseason and he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted to do? Because clearly what was done, at least so far, ain't working. Hey everyone, Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. So we've all had that dream, right? Tie game, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded. Well, on FanDuel Sportsbook, you get more than one shot to swing for the fences because FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free. That's right, new users get up to $1,000 back in site credit if your first bet doesn't win, and it only gets better from there. Once you have an account, you'll have access to same-game parlay insurance all season long. That's up to $25 back inside credit each day if your same-game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way, you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. They've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same-game parlay and always-on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Tuesday night, Max Freed and the Braves host Hyunjin Ryu and the Blue Jays. If Freed pitches like he did last week in D.C., the under might be the way to go. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook, promo code CHAT. 21 plus and present Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager, only for risk-free bet. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-9-WITH-IT-INDIANA. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-GAMBLER. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia. Tennessee, 1-800-889-9789, or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. Are you interested in buying or selling your home? Support for Nats Chat comes from Rachel Levy of Compass Real Estate. By focusing on the personal parts of the real estate process and using technology to simplify the rest, Rachel seamlessly guides her clients through their experience. Rachel uses her deep local knowledge and exceptional customer service to advocate for her clients all across D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. To learn more, follow her on Instagram at Real Estate Rachel. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
you need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Now Fetty rocks and kicks at the 0-1. Swung on, hit high in the air to right center field. This one is way back. This one is going, going, and gone. Goodbye. Bryce Harper has his seventh home run of the year, an 11th run batted in. 433 feet, the estimated distance. And the Phillies lead 1-0. All right, uh, the starting pitching for the Nationals. So Eric Fetty who overall has been good this season, but he now has had back-to-back subpar starts. He gave up the five runs in the five innings in his previous outing, that uh, 5-3 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nats Park last Wednesday night. And then on Tuesday night, you know, his final line doesn't end up being that bad, three runs in five innings, but, you know, sometimes you say a guy pitched better than the final line says. This, to me, was a classic case of a guy pitching worse than the final line says. Gives up five hits, a homer, two doubles, two singles, issues three walks, does have four strikeouts, but he threw just 50 of his 87 pitches for strikes. He had one clean inning, which was his final inning, that top of the fifth. I don't know. I didn't think it was a pretty good night for Fetty, but what did you think? No, I agreed with you, and and, and he admitted himself. He knew that he wasn't sharp at all. I mean, he needed 67 pitches just to get through the first three innings. So the fact he even completed five was kind of a minor miracle. They actually had Kyle Finnegan warming up at one point in the fourth, I think it was, maybe even in the third. Yeah, it was in the third before Fetty got out of that inning. And, you know, Finnegan would come in much later in the game in the eighth and and turn it into a mess. What was a close game turned into a little more lopsided. But that tells you how they could sort of tell that Fetty did not have it uh, in this game. Now, if on a night when you clearly don't have it, you still emerge with three runs in five innings and you gave your team a chance, I think there's something to be said for that especially for someone who is your number five or even number six starter, ultimately that in a weird way, maybe that's a little bit of a confidence booster to Fetty to say, hey, look, I did find a way to get through this and give my team a chance. And if I can just clean up a couple of things, it may have been a much better story than that. You're not going to have great stuff every time you take the mound. So on a night when you don't have it, kind of like Joe Ross the other day in New York, at least give your team a chance. Don't implode. Don't turn into a huge deficit early on like we saw in some games earlier in the season. I actually think there can be a positive take out of that if you're Eric Fetty. Way too many walks being issued by Nationals pitchers here lately. Fetty had the three walks in five innings. Nats pitchers for the game, eight walks over the nine innings. It's interesting with the Nationals bullpen on Tuesday night because everyone, with the exception of one, actually ended up getting the job done, but it certainly wasn't pretty. You know, you had nine clean innings, you know, you had something like Tanner Rainey score the seventh inning. Uh, he does that despite issuing back-to-back one-out walks, you know, that kind of a thing. Did strike out Bryce Harper on a nasty slider 
that was nice to see. We saw our guy Paolo Espino look very good. One and two-thirds perfect innings to drop his ERA to 164. But we did see Kyle Finnegan struggle in that top of the eighth inning, giving up three runs, recording just one out, gave up a leadoff double to Dubal Herrera, had him down 0-2 at one point, couldn't put him away. Then came an RBI double by Alec Bohm, then a five-pitch walk of Andrew McCutcheon, then a two-out intentional walk of Harper, and then the two-out two-run double by the pinch hitter Andrew Knapp, who also was down at one point, 1-2. The offense really is the reason the Nationals lost this game, but Finnegan struggles in that eighth inning, made the game into, you know, not a blowout, but certainly expanded the lead to where you felt like, all right, Nationals win probability at that point uh, was pretty low. Well, and here's where the struggling lineup, I think, has a domino effect on everything. When you know that you're not scoring runs early, this was the 11th time in 31 games this year that they did not score heading into the sixth inning. That's atrocious. So when you're the pitching staff and you know that's the case and you know how hard it is to for them to score runs, you're putting extra pressure on them now to be perfect. And, you know, I'm not trying to excuse Finnegan because it was a rough appearance for him. But like the margin for error there, he knows, is non-existent. And the moment the inning gets starts to get out of hand, and it was back-to-back doubles to start the inning, and now all of a sudden you're down two runs instead of one, and you can just sort of see a snowball from that point. And I think that's not necessarily surprising that it played out that way. Because the lineup is so bad, the bullpen in particular, I think, feels like it's got to be perfect, and that's a bad spot to be in when you have to be that way. So uh, not a good outing by him, but there's just there's no margin for error with this team right now because the offense is so limited. Yeah, and it's not asking for the impossible to win a game, say, 7-6, you know. The Nationals, every game now, it's three runs, two runs, one run. Like, that's, you know, you had 11-4 at the Yankees last Friday night. With the exception of that, it has been a parade of one run, two run, and three run outputs. I do want to give Will Harris some credit. You know, he's looked kind of spotty since he came to pitch this season, right? He was out for so much of the beginning of the season, but comes into the game top of the six, one out, bases loaded, and retires the two batters he faces, including striking out Andrew McCutcheon. That was not an easy spot. Uh, I thought Harris did a nice job there. The strikeout of McCutcheon, but then the we keep talking about long at bats. The longest one of the night was Gene Segura. 14 pitches. He fouled off everything that Harris had to throw at him. I don't know what Harris had left at that point. It was a hard hit ball. It was a line out to center, but props to him for a guy trying to come back from the injury and still feeling his way through it to emerge from that without giving up the run and to win a 14-pitch battle. I was in my mind thinking at that point, boy, if they do somehow come back to win this game, that was the turning point. Harris getting out of that jam and winning that long, sustained battle with Segura. It didn't work out that way. They were you know, one swing away in the seventh from making that happen. But that could have been actually a pivotal moment. And it shows you how even when you're trailing, they're down three runs at that point, why using good relievers in a spot in the sixth inning can still be significant to keep the deficit there. And I, I thought that was a really big moment for him. And hopefully that will carry over for him and get him back to what they've expected him to be all along. Yeah, some rough defense from Trey Turner in that sixth inning, allowing for the bases uh, to end up being loaded. So game two for the Nationals against the Phillies Wednesday night at 7.05, John Lester versus Zach Wheeler. So here we go. I mean, with this lineup, you know, struggling against Chase Anderson, what's going to happen against Zach Wheeler? You know, Zach Wheeler's having a very good season, second straight very good season for the Phillies. Got a 283 ERA, 139 ERA plus over seven starts. Lester so far over his two starts hasn't been bad. I mean, he's not dominant, but we kind of knew that going into the season. Five scoreless innings in start number one, three runs in five innings 
in start number two. But, you know, like, yes, it matters what Lester does. But if the Nats aren't going to score more than two runs, then it almost doesn't matter what Lester does. The offense has got to get going, and Wheeler's going to be a tough matchup. And they have to do it early. You know, they can't keep putting themselves in the spot where they're down. You know, even if it's only 2 nothing or 3 nothing, going into the later innings, they just can't keep getting into that position. We've talked about the difference in stats when they score first versus giving up the first runs. It is consistent throughout this season. When they score early, they put pressure on the other team. They take pressure off their pitching staff. They got to find a way to get to Wheeler early. Like I said, they've hit him in the past. I know he may be a different pitcher now than he was with the Mets. If ever there's a game to put Zimmerman in instead of Bell, this seems like it's it. I don't know if it doesn't happen here. I don't know when it's going to happen. And uh, maybe get somebody else at the top of the lineup, like I said, and try to create some opportunities for Turner and Soto. But if, if they trot out the same lineup again and they're held scoreless for the first five innings again, it's just going to feel like deja vu. And I think it's adding more pressure to a team that does not need pressure on it right now. They need to be relaxed. They need some of that 2019 Kalma magic, and they do not have it right now. They are pressing. No, and not to get caught up in the standings this early, but we've talked about nobody's running away with the National League East. The Mets now have won six consecutive games, walked off the Orioles and come from behind fashion on Tuesday night. Mets are at 17 and 13. Nationals are last in the division at 13 and 18. Nats are far from buried. I'm not trying to say that they are, but you know, at some point, someone's going to start to piece together some wins here, and the Mets just may be in the process of doing that. Hey, Nats fans, Tim Shower's here to tell you about Sunday Scaries CBD gummies. Many of you probably need help sleeping after watching the offense struggle yet again. It's been a tough stretch for the team. I know it. You know it. We all know it. So let me help you best we can. Today, you can get 25% off your first order with the code NATSCHAT at sundayscaries.com. That's 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com. Enter code NATSCHAT or ask for a coupon on the checkout page. Ready to chill out and get some much-needed peace of mind? Head to sundayscaries.com right now to get 25% off some sweet, sweet CBD gummies. Support for Nats Chat comes from Manscaped, which has the best men's grooming tools to get the job done. Fellas, listen up. Manscaped is here to ensure your post-quarantine body is ready for whatever the world throws at it. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. Join the movement for all of your below-the-waist grooming needs. Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full-body grooming game. Manscaped has forever changed the grooming game with the perfect package 3.0 for a limited time. Subscribers get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag, a $39 value, and the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped Boxers. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the promo code NATSCHAT at manscaped.com. Do yourself a favor and always use the right tools for the job. That's 20% off and free shipping with the promo code NATSCHAT at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. And don't forget to use the promo code NATSCHAT. All right, since we last talked on the NATSCHAT podcast, we've had very significant news transpire regarding fans at Nationals Park. On Monday, Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser announcing that the city plans to lift a number of COVID-19 pandemic-induced restrictions on May 21st with a full reopening of the city on June 11th. In accordance with this, the Nationals announced that they have been granted a waiver to expand capacity at Nationals Park to 36% beginning on May 14th, with full capacity being allowed beginning 
on June 11th. This is great news. This is exciting news. This is obviously the culmination of a very slow, laborious, and at times contentious process between the Nationals and the city of D.C., but fans are coming back and full capacity will be allowed within the next month. How quickly do you think we get to full capacity or get to, say, I don't know, 30, 35,000 at Nationals Park? I mean, the Nats have not been selling out so far with the 25% capacity. Now, that likely is a function of school still being in session and, you know, the Nats haven't been great so far this season. But do you think we'll see fans come back to the ballpark quickly or do you think it's going to take some time? I think it may take a little bit of time. I'll be real curious. The way that it's set up, and I don't know if this is going to change, you know, I don't know if they necessarily realized what the schedule was. So they're hosting the Giants on June 10th. And in theory, they're going to be limited to 36% capacity that night. And then the next night be allowed to go all the way up to 100%. So I don't think all of a sudden on the 11th, we're going to see it go from a crowd of, you know, 12,000 to a crowd of 40,000. I just don't see that happening. I think it'll get better. I do think there are a number of fans that have been itching for this. I think now that vaccinations are becoming much more prevalent and people have had the waiting period after it, you're going to see uh, more fans, you know, feeling less nervous about it. But in some ways, I almost wonder if the opening it to full capacity might scare some people away. I've even heard this from a few that they'd almost rather come if it's a a 50% situation where they feel a little more comfortable then all of a sudden being packed in with people bunched up real close to you. And I know mask wearing is still going to be responsible and all kinds of other restrictions are going to be in place. But I don't know. I I think it may take some time. I think the matchups make a difference. The weather makes a difference. Is the team playing well or not? But my guess is we don't just see an immediate jump up to, you know, near capacity. I think it's going to be more gradual with the exception of a few particular games that are popular because it's a weekend or the opponent and stuff like that. Yeah, and the Nats have to win. I mean, nothing is going to drive people back to the ballpark, I think, more than that. And if you're still scoring, you know, two and a half runs per game and your third batter, Josh Bell, is going 0 for 4 with three strikeouts, that's that's not going to put fannies in the seats. Like, we know how this works. So hopefully the Nats get better and more people do end up going to the park. But very happy to see that news. Uh, it was uh, overdue and uh, it should be cool. I, you know, when the Nationals do finally get a sellout, when you've got a jam-packed ballpark, whenever that is, it's going to be a special moment. It's going to be really cool to have that for the first time in a couple of years of what we've all gone through. One more item before we call it a show, and that is the announcement on Tuesday from Jordan Zimmerman that he is retiring. Jordan Zimmerman, in case you had lost track, signed a minor league deal with the Milwaukee Brewers this past February. But so far this season, it made just two relief appearances and had allowed five runs in five and two-thirds innings. He was an excellent national starting pitcher for a long time. Things did not go well for him in his post-Nats career, but he is so fondly remembered for what he did here for the Nationals 2009 through 2015. And I think that's how the Nats fan remembers him. You know, like what happened with Detroit is bad for him and the Tigers. But from a Nationals perspective, in the 15 or so years that the franchise has been here, Max Scherzer is the number one starting pitcher. Steven Strasburg is number two. And Zimmerman's number three in terms of the best that the Nats have had. And there was an argument that at the moment when he left the organization that he was number two or maybe even number one because Scherzer had not fully taken off yet. We tend to forget now. But there was a point that there were people who, if you asked them, let's say at the end of 2014, who would you rather the Nationals sign long-term, Jordan Zimmerman or Steven Strasburg, would have said Zimmerman in a heartbeat because he was Mr. Reliable. He was Mr. Durable. And that's why it's so hard to see what happened to him after he signed with Detroit. 
his body just didn't allow him to be the same pitcher anymore. He finally succumbed to injuries for a guy who was good for 32 starts and 200 innings every year for the Nationals once he got over his initial Tommy John surgery. And that was hard, and I think it was especially hard for him. I joined in on his farewell uh, retirement Zoom press conference that the Brewers put out on Tuesday. And for those of you who don't know him at all, he is the most stoic, unemotional person you'll ever meet. Never shows any emotion at all. And he actually broke down in tears during this one. Uh, And it came, it was sort of building up to it, but it came on a question from a writer from Detroit asking him about his time there and what his biggest takeaway from that will be. And he kind of choked up and he said, I just wish I was healthy. Yeah, I just said, I wish I would have stayed healthy. Sorry. And he knew he didn't live up to the contract there. $105 million over five years. It was a huge disappointment. And he realized that that sort of tarnished his legacy. And he's a very prideful guy. And he realized he just did not do what he was supposed to do. And he wound up not having the career that so many of us thought he would have had uh, at the end of his time here in D.C. The numbers for Jordan Zimmerman with the Nationals over seven seasons, 2009 through 2015, 178 regular season starts, ERA of 332, ERA plus of 118. He accumulated a war per baseball reference of 19.5. He goes to the Tigers, pitches for them for five years, 16 through 20, ERA of 563 over 99 regular season games, including 97 starts. And how about the war? Less than one win above replacement for Zimmerman over five years with Detroit. 0.9 war versus, again, 19.5 war with the Nationals. Like, you really can't overstate how badly things went for Zim with the Tigers. It's another example of paying a guy in his 30s for what he did in his 20s. And the Nationals will never come out and say this, nor should they, but they played this perfectly. Mike Rizzo played this like a master with this. Drafted Jordan Zimmerman. Remember, Zimmerman uh, ended up being the comp pick for Alfonso Soriano, not being dealt away in the summer of 2006. So he gets drafted before Rizzo takes over as GM. But obviously, Rizzo decided not to re-sign Zimmerman, and it worked out to perfection from a national standpoint. They did this exactly the way you're supposed to do. You know, the Nats, interestingly, have a good track record when it comes to letting guys go in free agency. We'll see what happens with Bryce Harper. I know he's having a big year. But like Tanner Rourke, we didn't, we didn't talk about this. Tanner Rourke got DFA'd recently. You know, that, that trade of Tanner Rainey for Tanner Rourke, you know, we'll see what happens with Rainey, but obviously he's very good last year. But like the Nationals have a sense of when to say bye-bye to people. And maybe they get burned with the Strasburg contract. We'll see. But man, the way they played the Zimmerman thing, they got the very best of him. They never had to pay him the big money. And then all of his struggles happened elsewhere. I tweeted this on Tuesday, but I'll share it with everyone who didn't see it. And it's the honest truth. The day, I think it was January 18th, 2015, when the word got out that the Nats were signing Max Scherzer, my reaction in my own head was Max Scherzer. I mean, he's good. But why would you pay him $210 million when you could have just kept Jordan Zimmerman for half the price? That my feeling was they're fairly comparable. Maybe Scherzer's better than Zimmerman, but is he twice as good? Did they really need to go out and spend all that money and now guarantee that you're going to lose Jordan Zimmerman? And uh, this is why Mike Rizzo has a World Series ring, and I do not. He is one of the best GMs in baseball. He's not perfect. I'm not going to try to claim that. He makes his share of mistakes, certainly. But his batting average is... Uh, especially on the big stuff, is higher than almost anyone. And uh, he certainly was right about that one. Now, can I go back also now and, and relive the greatest moment of Jordan Zimmerman's career, of course, the no-hitter 
on the final day of the regular season, 2014, against the Marlins. And first of all, I wasn't there. I actually missed it. I was off that day. Long story, but I was appearing on a TV show that night. And because it was the regular season finale, they'd already clinched the division. There wasn't really anything at stake. And I knew it was going to be a super long day if I covered the game and then went to the studio for the TV show. I decided to hand it off and not cover it. And then, of course, look at what happened. Fortunately, I've covered other no-hitters, so that wasn't like the one and only chance for me. But to me, still, the most amazing thing about that game, because it was the regular season finale, because they'd clinched, nothing was at stake, Matt Williams ends up replacing everyone from his starting lineup during the course of the game, everyone except for Wilson Ramos, the catcher. So he subbed out everyone else. And in the ninth inning of a no-hitter, you had all backups in the game, including Steven Souza Jr., who had just come into the game to make the great catch that saved the no-hitter, one of the all-time great endings to a no-hitter. Now, let me ask you this, Al. I don't think you're going to get the answer to this one right. Who was the starting left fielder that day for the Nationals, and who would have been in there if not for uh, that last-minute replacement for Steven Souza Jr.? So it wasn't worth, right? He was still in right field at that point. Uh, correct, although he, he didn't play in that game at all. Oh, he didn't? Okay. Uh, who is it? A guy named Ryan Zimmerman. Oh, is that right? Yes. This was when they were trying him out in left field. It was the end of the season. He had come off an injury. They knew he probably wasn't going to be able to play the field during the playoffs. They had Adam LaRoche at first. So they couldn't move him there. He had, couldn't play third base anymore. Anthony Rendon had taken over there. So it was like the only spot in the field they could try him. So he starts the game in left field. Now, if he's still in there, does he make that catch? Is there any chance he's, he makes the game seven catch for the no-hitter? Probably not. Although he was more athletic at that time, but no, probably not. That was a spectacular catch that Sousa made. It was. And so one of the, I love those like, you know, what if moments. And uh, thank God that Steven Sousa was in there for that one, along with all the other backups, Nate Shearholz, Kevin Franzen, Tyler Moore, Scott Hairston, Michael A. Taylor, Jeff Coburness at second base. It was a bit of a motley crew for the ninth inning, but it made to me, it made that moment all the more special. And what an amazing way for a no hitter to end. Yeah, I mean, that 2014 Nats team to me is the best we've had here in terms of the regular season. That, that was a great team that, of course, uh, spit up on itself in the postseason offensively in that four-game NLDS loss to the Giants. I'll say this, too, about Jordan Zimmerman. Everyone remembers a no-hitter, like you just said. Great moment. He also, of course, pitched out of his mind in that Game 2 loss against the Giants in the 2014 NLDS, and then we know what happened later with the 18-inning loss. But a moment I'll always remember for me is the Worthquake game where Jordan Zimmerman gets utilized as a reliever by Davey Johnson, and he looked like he was pitching with his hair on fire. <laughs> this is one of the most adrenaline-inducing outings I've ever seen from a Nats pitcher. And Jordan Zimmerman strikes out the side. Cardinals retired in the seventh. It's the home seventh of a 1-1 game. Right, a starter as a reliever in the postseason. Do-or-die game for the Nationals at Nationals Park. It's a Friday night. Zimmerman comes into the game, perfect top of the seventh with three strikeouts. And it just, I don't know, it just felt like this is going to happen. And of course, it ended up happening with the earthquake shot. But I'll always kind of remember that as a really fun, maybe underrated moment in Zimmerman's career. Like the Nationals were a young team, a team on the rise. This kid comes under the mound in a huge spot and just destroys the Cardinals in that inning. I, I love that. Absolutely. There was a huge moment. The crowd was on fire for that. They loved every minute of it. And what we have to remember, because what we saw in 2019, where Strasburg pitched out of the bullpen in the wild card game, Scherzer pitched out of the bullpen in the NLDS, and Corbin pitched out of the bullpen multiple times, including game seven of the World Series. In 2012, 
that was not nearly as common of a thing to have happen. So to see him trot out for the first time in his life and pitch in relief in a, with the season on the line was a huge, I suppose, gamble in some ways by Davey Johnson, and it paid off spectacularly. And then unfortunately, I think Davey got a little full of himself because the next night, he tried to do the same thing with Edwin Jackson and assumed that the same thing would happen, and it did not. Edwin was part of the late-game meltdown, not the only reason and certainly not the primary reason they lost that game, but he did give up a run and um, you know, a reminder that not everyone is appropriate to come out of the bullpen with the season on the line. But you're right, that was an electric moment, an electric game, and uh, they don't get to game five if not for what Jordan Zimmerman did. No, they don't. You tell us what you think. Memories of Jordan Zimmerman. Comments on what's going on with the Nationals. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. And you can email us, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget, Nats Chat t-shirts are coming. Information will be forthcoming. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. All on their feet, all around Nationals Park. The 2-1 pitch, line to left center field. Sousa moving over. Can he get there? He makes it down the catch! He makes it down the catch!